0: Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. Uh, welcome to Westgate. So glad you're here. Ronald, you're here. Ronald, that's my buddy Ronald, and he was a part of the men's uh, fathers and kids camping trip. You survived? The boys did okay? Yeah, was, you're hesitating. <laughs> it was kind of a rough weekend. <laughs> uh, how, many, how many families do we have, or how many dads do you know? 28 dads from Westgate with their kids camping this weekend. So fun. Thanks to Ronald and uh, the whole crew of men who put that together. I, um, I was busy. That's why I did not go. Also, I don't do well camping. So, <clears throat> all right. Um, let's jump in here. Uh, Ten years ago, a decade ago, the great Canadian theologian, Drake, um, offered us modern culture's primary ethic this way, he said these words. Started from the bottom, now we're here, and this changed everything, right? Start from the bottom, now we're here. I cannot quote the rest of the song in church, um, but some of you, pagan pagan sinners, know the rest of the song. I do too, so we're all sinners together. So uh, let's visualize, I mean, this is what a great line, right? Started from the bottom, now we're here. We, we see that line and we think to ourselves, yes, that's it, that's the American dream. For him, it's the Canadian dream, because he's Canadian, but you get it, right? This is the modern dream. We all feel like we start from the bottom, we hustle, we work hard, and what do we do? We make our way to the top. So let's visualize this with the next slide. This is the modern primary ethic. We started from the bottom, we work hard, we hustle, we put in maximum effort, and now we're here. This is not bad. Let me be very clear. In fact, the scriptures are clear. That hard work, effort, pulling up your bootstraps and getting after it, that is actually a biblical principle. So I just want you to know, what I am not saying is that Drake was wrong. That is not what I'm saying. All I am saying is that, yes, this is a part of the human narrative, that we all feel like we start at a certain point, but we want life to get better. And especially for those of us living here, first of all, just in America, um, and then specifically here in a place that is challenging, but also full of possibilities like the Silicon Valley, this is something we should be grateful for. Because not everybody around the world has the opportunity through hard work to achieve a better life for themselves and for their loved ones. And we have that opportunity here. In fact, many of you in this room are here in large part because you put in maximum effort. And that has had a tremendous impact on your family and for many of us on the world through your generosity, through your sort of belief that the blessings in your life are not primarily about you, but for God's glory and for the good of the world. This is a beautiful, wonderful thing but let's continue the trajectory. Just life, human life, where does this go? Or better yet, like what Drake didn't tell you. We started from the bottom, now we're here, but for all of us, eventually everyone dies, right? This is the human trajectory. It's like, there's no denying it. All of us would agree, this is the trajectory. Now it's this sort of mountain. You climb up the mountain, you reach a particular peak, And then at a certain point, you will die. You don't have to be Christian to believe this. In fact, people who are not Christians believe this more than Christians do, right? Because this is human life. Started from the bottom, work hard, now we're here. And then eventually, what Drake didn't tell you, we all die, right? This is the human story. If you've been around, and it's okay if you haven't been around, but for the last year and a half or so, almost two years now, this church family has been trekking through a book in the Bible, the first book in what we call the New Testament, uh, called Matthew, or better yet, the Gospel according to Matthew. Gospel is just a fancy word that means good news, so it really means the good news according to Matthew, and in particular, it is the good news the story of a man named Jesus. So it is this ancient writer, Matthew. It is his biography of Jesus Christ. And um, before we get to the text that we are in today, uh, let me give you a little bit of a recap because the recap actually informs where we are headed today. So if, if we've learned, those of you who've been around, if we've learned anything from the last two years through Matthew's biography of Jesus, it is that Jesus offers an alternative vision for human life and human flourishing and life in God's kingdom. If you've been paying attention for the last year and a half, amongst all the other things we have learned, this theme is very clear, that Jesus offers an alternative vision. So let me show you what I mean. Let's, um, today we're going to be in Matthew 17, but before we get there, let's just recap, because it's been about a month since we were there together, Um, let's recap the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, there's a story. We talked about this about six weeks ago. There's a story of Jesus. He and his disciples enter a city called Caesarea Philippi. We talked at length about how Caesarea Philippi was this place of utter idolatry. They believed in all sorts of gods, including like they worshiped the emperor of Rome as a god. They worshiped an an ancient Greek god called Pan. That's who we get Peter Pan from, this god of mischief and perpetual childhood. Anyways, he enters a city called Caesarea Philippi that is focused on the worship of all these other false gods, all these false idols. And in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples this key question. He says, who do you say that I am? In the midst of all of these false gods, Jesus, who at this point is sort of known as a great moral teacher, potentially a prophet, he asks his disciples, hey, who do you think I am? Who do you think I really am? And then Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 17. Simon Peter, one of the disciples, a prominent disciple, Simon Peter answered, You, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus asks, Who do you guys think that I am? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. This word Messiah in the original language of the text, is the Greek word Christos, from which you and I get the English word Christ. Again, we talked about this about six weeks ago. Christ is not a name, it's not a proper name. Jesus' last name is not Christ, he's not Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. And it's the same word, Christ, Messiah. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. Both of those words, Mashiach and Christos, Messiah and Christ, are the same exact word. And they mean anointed one. This was the word used by first century Jews to declare the person they believed God would send to change the human story. To rescue them from their plight and to lead them to victory and to life. And so when Peter says, Jesus, I know who you are you're the Messiah, you are the Christ. What Peter is saying is Jesus, I know who you are. You are the chosen one, the greatest of all time, the one who has come to bring rescue and redemption and restoration to fulfill God's promise to lead us, his people, out of the bondage of slavery and into freedom. That is who you are, that's what Peter is saying. This is Jesus's revelation of his true identity to his closest friends. And the fact that he was the Messiah or the Christ meant that he was, again, the great rescuer that had come to bring salvation and victory to his people. It does not get any higher than this, right? For for the Messiah, the Christ to have arrived, this is mountaintop experience. But then the very next story, Jesus shocks everybody. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 24, just a few verses later. What does the story tell us? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, so all of the religious leaders of the day, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were the Christ, the chosen one, the one who was gonna defeat all of our enemies. And now in the very next breath, you are telling me you're gonna die? And worse yet, you're telling me for me to follow you, the Messiah, I too have to carry my cross? And the cross, I mean, today we wear crosses around our necks and they're like ornaments and jewelry. At the time, the cross was, nobody would have worn a necklace of the cross, you guys. It was an instrument of death. In fact, the most shameful, painful death possible at that time, that was the cross. So let's go back to, Let's go back to what Drake taught us about life. We started from the bottom, now we're here, but what Drake didn't tell us, at least in that song, is eventually we all die. This is, this is the human trajectory that most of us are familiar with, that most people in the world today, in the modern world today, we construct our lives on this trajectory. We started here, we worked hard, we achieved greatness, the mountaintop, but honestly, eventually what we all know is we're gonna die. What does the story of Jesus look like? He is the Messiah, the greatest of all time, the one who has come to usher in victory and life and redemption and restoration. And all his disciples are like, yes, we knew it, dude. We knew you were the guy. We're in. We're gonna conquer. We're gonna rule. And then like four verses later, Jesus is like, also, I'm gonna die. And if you wanna follow me, you gotta die too. That's, that's, the, the, that's like what Jesus offers. I'm not making this up. This is Matthew 16. Just read it. That's what Jesus does. This is quite literally the opposite trajectory of the sort of up and to the right that culture presents us in terms of what life is all about. And this leads us to our text today. Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. Right after all of this, right after Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah, but also I'm going to die. And if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and die too. Right after that, what does Jesus do? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. These are sort of like his inner three. He's got a bunch of people who follow him. Then he's got his 12, like his best buddies, you know, the 12 disciples. And then even amongst the 12 disciples throughout the gospel stories, what you see is that Jesus has these three, Peter, James, and John. They're like his closest friends. So Jesus takes his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the, the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. What in the world? This story, we'll read more of it here in a moment, but this story is often called the transfiguration because of that word. In verse two, that Jesus takes his best friends up on this mountain and all of a sudden he just does the greatest magic trick of all time, he like elevates into the air and he begins literally glowing, bioluminescence. My daughter has been learning about bioluminescence, these little fish deep down underwater that because of the chemical makeup of their bodies, they will sometimes glow. And my daughter thinks it's so amazing, right? It is amazing that these little fish will just light up, bioluminescence. That's what Jesus does, except he's not a little fish, he's a human. And he just starts glowing. It says that his face is as bright as the sun. I mean, you can imagine Peter, James, and John just being like, oh my goodness, what? You know, you can't stare into the sun too long, right? That's what's happening here. This word transfigured is the Greek word "metamorphao," from which we get the English word metamorphosis. It means transformed. It means like um, a complete change in the actual substance but it's actually sort of a strange misnomer to call this a transformation of Jesus. It's not like he was just a normal human up to this point, and then all of a sudden on this mountain, he changes. That's not what's happening here. This is more of a revelation. This is Jesus revealing to his best friends the, the, he's affirming and confirming Peter's confession from a few verses back. When Peter said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the chosen one that has come to rescue us. You, that's you. You are that guy beyond human. This is Jesus's opportunity to essentially say in a physical way, Peter was right. Look at me. I'm not just a great teacher. I'm not just the next in the long line of prophets. I am something more. He's revealing himself to his closest friends. this point is made emphatically as the story continues. Now, the rest of the story is a little bit obscure, but let's read it and then let's unpack it together. What does the story say? Just then, meaning like literally right after Jesus begins glowing, just then appeared before them next to Jesus, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. If you're unfamiliar, Moses and Elijah are um, Old Testament characters. They had walked the earth thousands of years before Jesus, and here they are now with Jesus. What? What is happening? Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter wants to stay here. You know what I mean? He's like, this is the best. You're glowing. These guys are supposed to be dead, and here they are floating. Let's just stay here forever. This is awesome, right? This is like, let me build some shelters. Let's just, the six of us hang out here forever. That's what Peter wants to do. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud, the voice of God the Father, said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Does this line sound familiar? Where else have we seen this exact same thing happen? Like a year and two months ago, right? Anyone remember? The baptism of Jesus When Jesus is baptized, the heavens rip open and you hear the voice of God the Father say literally the same lines. And then verse eight, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came, and this is so awesome. He touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. How would you feel if after this service, you walked outside And you looked up and the clouds had broken. I know it was a little bit cloudy this morning. And the clouds have broken. I can actually see the sun shining right now. After the service, how would you feel if you walked outside and you were like, oh, no more clouds, beautiful. It's another wonderful, sunny California day. But it was like hotter than you expected. And you looked up at the sun and you realized it's just bigger in the sky than you've ever seen it before. How would you feel at that point? You'd be like, huh, that's weird. And then you just kept staring at the sun. It's hard to stare because it's so bright, but you keep looking because it's kind of really big and it's really hot. And then what if it just, the sun just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger? How would you feel? You'd be like, oh no, what is happening? And it just started getting hotter and hotter and brighter and brighter. And the sun just gets bigger and bigger. And you realize the sun is hurling itself toward the planet and toward me. How would you feel? You'd be like, where's Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck? Send them up on a spaceship. They need to blow this up or something, right? Like you would start panicking and freaking out. The disciples are scared because Jesus looks a way that humans aren't supposed to look. And the way Jesus comforts them in their fear is to draw near, Now, it doesn't tell us this in the story, but think about the moment between his touch and their fear. As Jesus, bioluminescing, begins approaching these three young men. They are young men, by the way, probably in their late teens. He begins approaching them to touch them, but he touches them. Even in their fear, he touches them and he speaks these beautiful words that he has spoken many times in the Gospel of Matthew. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's so much happening in this story, but there's just one key question that sort of unlocks the scene. So let's talk about it together. What are Moses and Elijah doing here? Many of you know the transfiguration story, and I'm sure you've seen paintings and such. And maybe you've asked this question, right? Like, why? Why Moses and Elijah? Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with their stories, perfectly okay. Let me just give you... Now, their stories are very long and very rich. So there's, there's no way I can do their stories justice right now. But for our purposes here today, trying to unlock the scene of the transfiguration, let me just give you some bullet points about Moses and Elijah. First, Moses. Moses is a Jewish boy that miraculously, he is born during a time when um, Egypt, the empire of Egypt, rules the known world. And Egypt has enslaved the Jewish people. And the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt at the time, he levies a decree where he says, kill every firstborn Jewish boy in the land. That's what Moses is. He's a firstborn Jewish boy. He's supposed to die. But miraculously, he is put in a basket, sent down the the river, and um, essentially, miracle of miracles, he is rescued by the princess of Egypt, and he is raised as a prince in Egypt, which is where we get the name of the 90s DreamWorks film, Prince of Egypt, which is about Moses. Long story short, Moses eventually, in his young adulthood, he decides to flee Egypt, And he encounters God in the wilderness. And God tells him, Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt and rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. Moses reluctantly says yes. And again, miracle after miracle, Moses, God through Moses, rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they began this long 40-year journey through the wilderness to freedom, a place that they called the promised land. Now, during this journey, the people of Israel began bickering and complaining. They're like, Moses, why did you pull us out of slavery? The wilderness is like kind of a downer. We don't wanna be here. Let's go back and be slaves. Moses is like, are you kidding me? And he goes to God, this one story. He climbs up a mountain. This is very important. He climbs up a mountain called Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, Long story short, lots of things happen, but one of the things that happens is Moses says to God, God, I can't do this. Your people, your people are terrible. I don't wanna lead them anymore. And then he says to God, I'm not gonna do this, God, unless I can see you. Unless you show yourself to me, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do this. You need to show yourself to me. And what does God say? God says, I can't show, I can't reveal my full self to you. If I did, I am too good, I am too holy, I am too perfect for a sinful, broken person like you to lay eyes on me. It would kill you. So, what does God do? God says, Here's what I'll do. I will, these are the literal words I will pass by you. I will pass by you with my back turned to you. So Moses, you cannot see me fully. I will not let you see my face, but I will pass by you and you could see my backside, essentially. That's what God says. And that's what happens. Moses is the first person in the story to actually lay eyes on God himself, the radiant light that is God. Now, because God is perfect and holy. There's a whole other teaching some other time, but long story short, because God is sinless and perfect and holy, Moses can't lay eyes on him fully. So he just sees God passing by with his back turned to him. That's really important. Moses climbs Mount Sinai. He asks to see God and he sees God in part, okay? Now, Elijah. Elijah is an iconic prophet. He is probably the most iconic prophet in Israel's history. Some of you know the story, the famous story of Elijah, where he has this showdown with the prophets of a false god called a pagan god um, called uh, Baal, Baal, right? You guys know this story. And he kind of makes fun of them. He basically has this showdown on this mountain and they have this um, altar and a sacrifice. And they basically say, whichever God, Baal or Yahweh, God, my father, whichever God sends down fire to burn up the altar, burn up the sacrifice, that is the one true God. And there's like hundreds of false prophets of Baal and they're doing all of this ritual. And the story is so awesome. Like uh, Elijah starts making fun of them This is in the Bible. He'll say things like, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's tired. At one point he says, hey, you guys, shout louder because maybe maybe your God's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. He's like reading the sports section. Just shout louder. And over and over again, he's just ridiculing these false gods. Obviously it's a false God, so nothing happens. And then Elijah, one man, praise to Yahweh, the one true God, fire comes down and he slays. Literally and figuratively he slays these false prophets. But then right after that story, something really interesting happens. The queen of the land, a woman, an evil woman named Jezebel, hears about what Elijah has done and she's so angry. she's like, I'm gonna murder him. I'm gonna kill him. Send all my forces, find Elijah, we're going to murder him. Elijah has just seen God send literal fire from heaven to earth. But because this evil queen is now after his life, he's afraid. He's struck with anxiety. He runs to a mountain and God meets him on the mountain. This is the famous story in 1 Kings about God speaking in a gentle whisper. We've talked about this here before. And then something really interesting happens. Now, remember what I said about the Moses story. Elijah is told by God to go up a particular mountain. Guess which mountain? Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, Elijah in his desperation doesn't know what to do. So what does God tell Elijah? He says, listen, you need faith. You need to know I am with you. So here's what's gonna happen. I am going to pass by you. I'm gonna show myself to you. Now, Elijah... I cannot show you myself fully, you would die. So what I'm gonna do, this should all sound really familiar, right? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pass by you with my back turned to you. The Lord will pass by you and you will see me, not in full, but in part. So again, to summarize, Moses and Elijah, both of their stories, they climb up Mount Sinai, this high mountain. They are in a moment of desperation. Death is before them. Literally, they're like, I can't do this. I'm not gonna make it. God says, listen, I'm gonna reveal myself to you, but I cannot reveal myself to you totally, you would die. So I will, to both of them, I will pass by you with my back turned to you. This happens to both Moses and Elijah. And then if you get to the end of their life stories, Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, the stories of their deaths are both really ambiguous. In fact, in Jewish tradition, the belief was that Moses and Elijah never really died traditional human deaths, but that the Lord essentially swept them up into his presence. That's Moses and Elijah. Again, Moses and Elijah during their lifetimes, had seen God in part, but not fully, and it left them completely changed and both of their lives end ambiguously, almost as like to be continued. That's how both Moses and Elijah's stories end. And now here, their stories at the transfiguration, their stories are completed. That's why they're here. It is not about them. It's about what their stories tell us about who Jesus actually is. These incomplete stories for Moses and Elijah are completed as they now stand in the radiant presence of God himself, fully revealed in Jesus. They now see the face of God as they look to the radiant, glowing face of Jesus, who is God. What is happening at the transfiguration is a confirmation, an affirmation that Jesus is not just a great moral teacher or simply the next in the long line of great prophets. Jesus is God himself. The story of Moses and Elijah that essentially had both ended as to be continued, dot, dot, dots, and had waited generations. They are here at the transfiguration as a period at the end of the sentence of their lives. That both of them had seen God in part generations ago and now in the presence of Jesus who is God, they were seeing God in full. Jesus is not a great teacher He's not just a great prophet. Jesus is God. That's the story of the transfiguration. You guys remember in the mid-2000s, there there were these um, T-shirts. I'll show you an image here. You guys remember how popular these T-shirts were? Jesus is my homeboy. Okay, no judgment. Who had a Jesus is my homeboy T-shirt? It's okay. Okay, I know at least 50 of you did and you don't want to admit it. That's okay. Uh, There were photos of like Brad Pitt, Ben Affleck, Ashton Kutcher, Jessica Simpson, all these like famous mid-2000s stars wearing Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Now here's the thing. These shirts have gone out of style, right? But the sentiment remains for a lot of people. And I understand the sentiment. Jesus wants to have this genuine friendship with us. He doesn't just love us. He likes us. He wants to be our friend. That's totally true. That's all absolutely true. But Taken to extreme, this sentiment that Jesus is my friend, he's my homie, um, it leads to a really dangerous sort of casualness in our approach to Jesus. Yes, Jesus wants friendship with us, but the one who wants friendship with us is God himself, the God of the universe who is so holy, so radiant that to fix your eyes on him is like fixing your eyes on the sun. The casual friend cannot transcend and defeat the cross. Only God can defeat death. Your homeboy can't do that for you. A great moral teacher, as great as that teacher may be, cannot defeat death for you. Only God can. And Jesus is God. I'll show you this next image. If Jesus is not God then the way of Jesus leads to the same place as the way of the world. If Jesus is not God, then the way of Jesus leads to the cross where everybody eventually dies, what Drake didn't tell you, right? If Jesus is not God, then what is the point? We're all headed to the same place. But, I'll show you the next slide. Because Jesus is God because the transfiguration declares that Jesus is more than a great moral teacher, but that he is God himself with the strength and the might and the power and the ability to defeat the cross, to defeat death. That means that resurrection is possible for you and for me. Listen, maybe your life feels a little bit less like the up and to the right of started from the bottom, now we're here. Maybe that's a great Drake song for you, but it's not really your life. Maybe for some of us in this room, I'll show you this next slide. Maybe your life looks a little bit more like Messiah to the cross. Maybe your life feels a little more like you had your plans, but then here's your reality. If that's not you right now, my guess is that you can at least relate that has been your experience at some point. Colossians 1, what does it tell us? The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, reflecting on the radiance of the transfiguration, the writer says, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The way this is phrased in English is interesting. In the original language, it essentially means he is God. What does he do? Jesus, our God. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Listen, whatever in your life feels like it is falling apart. You had your plans, but your reality does not look like your plans. Whatever that whatever that decline includes for you, whether it's family or relationships or career, hopes, dreams, aspirations, your mental or emotional health, whatever it might be, whatever delta exists between your plans, your dreams, your desires, and your actual reality, whatever that looks like, if Jesus is God, then he is, whether you know it or not, he is able and he is willing to hold it all together and sustain all things. What it will require of you though is to descend down the path of the cross. Not to spend your entire life trying to climb, but to follow Jesus on the way of Jesus. From Messiah to cross, from your plans to death, dying to yourself, putting to death the desire to be the God of your own life, surrendering your all to Christ as King. And do that, though, and you will experience resurrection life. I'll show you this next slide. This is the path of Jesus. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Learn to see the glory in the cross. Learn to see the cross in the glory. And you will have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of the God who hides in the cloud, the God who is to be known in the strange person of Jesus himself. This is the way of Jesus. I'm gonna invite Mark and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond together. Um, I know several of you were at the beach baptisms last Sunday. Um, here's a picture. This is not even everybody, uh, but it's a good majority of the folks who are baptized on Sunday. Um, if you've ever been to beach baptisms, uh, you know that before we baptize folks in the water, we circle up in groups of like 8 to 10 to 12. And we spend the first 30 minutes or so just in these small groups going around and sharing our stories with one another. And it strikes me. It's so moving to me every single time we do this, that in those circles, I know the video makes it seem like so beautiful and fun and energetic, and it totally is. But if you could see what it's like in those circles, what you would realize is that in those circles, as we share stories with one another, it's just story after story after story of death. It's the stories of the death of, the literal death of loved ones, the death of relationships, the death of hopes and dreams and plans. Just in my circle alone, there was a story of a marriage, a long-standing marriage that had come crumbling down in recent years. There was a story of um, a mother who didn't think she was going to live long enough to raise her son. It's just a story of death after death after death. But what's so profound is that these men and women get baptized because they have come to realize that it is the path of the cross, the path of death, that readies you for resurrection life. That if the world invites you to climb, 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 and reach the apex, as much success and accolades and stuff as you could possibly achieve, knowing that for all of us, It all descends down into death. Baptisms are a reminder that the way of Jesus is to remember that he is the Christ, but to follow him is to die. But it is in death that we prepare and ready ourselves for resurrection life. That's the reminder for us today. That's the reminder of the Transfiguration. That Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is God himself who has come to defeat death on your behalf. That he could do that in your life today if you'll let him. So the question is, will you let him? Let's all stand and sing and respond together.